welcome to Personalized Learning with Matt and Courtney. My name is Matt. My name is Courtney. And we talk about the do-dos and don't-dos of personalized learning. That is right. Today, we have an interview. What? I know, we haven't done one in so long. It was really nice to do it. So our guests today are Catherine Prince and Abby Forbes Everett. They both work at KnowledgeWorks. And Catherine is the Vice President of Strategic Foresight. And Abby is a Director of Teaching and Learning at KnowledgeWorks. And we're gonna talk about a paper called Envisioning Human-Centered Learning Systems today with them. And uh, I'm glad we're talking to them today. It's a pretty fascinating paper. Uh, Mm -hmm. It sounds very intimidating, but it turns out it's really not. Uh, Yeah, I I agree, I agree. It is not as intimidating once you get into it and and really start to think about what it all means. So without any more discussion, here's the interview. So hello and welcome today. It's nice to meet you, Catherine and Abby. Hi, it's great to be here. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Absolutely. Uh, So we we have a a paper that you have written. Uh, It's called Envisioning Human-Centered Learning Systems, uh, put out by KnowledgeWorks. And we're very interested in, uh, first of all, finding out from you what human-centered learning systems means, and then we'll dig into the paper a little bit. Sure, so we put forward the idea of human-centered learning systems as a provocation informed by our strategic foresight practice where we look to the future of learning and think, how can we push beyond what's happening today to imagine additional possibilities or different possibilities for education? So human-centered learning, we imagine to be a systemic shift that would really reorient educational structures and policies and practices and programs around all the people involved in education and their flourishing and well-being. So not just the children, but also the educators, families, community members, really to kind of tip system so that people are at the center more so than, are, than they are today. So it's pushing beyond a lot of the great practices that are at play today, personalized learning, student-centered learning, some of the practices around restorative justice or mindfulness. These are all kind of pieces of what it could be, but it's saying, it's more than that. It's to say, if in 10 or, 10 or more years, could we have kind of flipped our systems around, restructured them to be to really um, prioritize people in the way we often say we want to, but we often don't enact yet today. So one of the things I was noticing when I was reading this was about how this is different from like personalized competency-based education, which Courtney and I talk about like all the time. And I like how you mentioned that it goes further than that and incorporates community members and people not traditionally thought of as a school system, right? As educators. So I know there are some elements that I wanna get into about this paper that will kind of dig deeper a little bit into what that going further means. One of those is that we really organize schools around love and belonging. So what we mean by that is among the, around the caring for all the people involved in learning um, and in kind of a um, you know, companionate way, we're all, we're all looking after one another and really trying to prioritize um, people's emotional experiences and well-being and trying to create cultures where people really feel a strong sense of belonging. So this is a, this is a real cultural dimension about how we are together in our learning spaces and how, how we help everyone feel included in them so that we can bring, they can bring their full selves 
to the, the learning experience and what, whatever part of it they're contributing to or whatever way they're contributing. Matt, I like how you said taking it a step further than personalized competency-based, because when you think about how we've done the work of personalized competency-based learning, one thing that comes to mind is looking at data. Well, data-driven systems make sense, but when you look at data from the human-centered element, you have to dive deeper than you usually think of when you pull data. And so data is having conversations with each child each family about what makes sense. And so you can use data as a trend to notice some things, notice what's happening, but the human-centered side is we have those deep conversations and really figure out why is that data coming that way and what will actually be a help in this particular situation for this individual and this family. So, so it seems like it's a little bit more than like advisory. All right, because what you described to me a little bit is we do some of that stuff. We, we, we look at the data. We have a counselor talking with kids. Occasionally, we have the parents come in. But it's I like I like how everything is going a little bit further than that. So it sounds familiar, like from a teacher point of view. But then there's more that I don't quite understand and things that we don't usually do in school. So I, I like how this this is taking it further but in a safe way to me as a teacher. And I, and I think a big piece of it is that we can, we can do great work implementing personalized competency-based learning within today's structures, and we do. Um, but this is asking, can we, can we change those structures in a deeper way? So could we think differently about assessment and accountability? Could we think differently about how teachers are prepared and, and compensated and supported, or what the, or what the, the roles that teachers occupy are. Could, in addition to thinking about could, how we might change what's happening with the core interactions around learning. So there's another element you have about leadership uh, being intentionally inclusive and co-creative. Uh, can you talk about that one a little bit? Yeah, so we were imagining that one is, is really broadening leadership as it often happens today and in, in not just educational institutions but in many kinds of organizations and institutions so that it's um, it's much more distributed really focused on kind of horizontal partnerships shared power so that all everyone involved in in a school or in a school district or another learning setting is um, making really um, key decisions and contributing to the innovation that needs to take place um, so it's really trying to to be very inclusive, helping lots of people have authentic contributions to, to what's happening and the decisions that are being taken. Um, and it's it's relying a lot on really um, kind of a dense network of relationships. So we can kind of take down some of our established um, systems that can be hierarchical and, and inequitable. There's, there's a quote in there that I love um, from John A. Powell. It says, in order to co-create, you need power. And this idea of, we talk about student agency and learner agency in our classrooms, but when we bring up teacher agency, sometimes it's like, ooh, we can't do that. Or where do, where do teachers and educators feel empowered and feel like they have that sense of control or power in order to help make decisions and help change systems so that they are more human-centered? I think that leads into one of my, uh, like next questions about one of these elements about 
how education liberates young people to participate fully in society. Uh, you're mentioning how the teacher agency and being allowed to do things, which is not always the case in our school systems these days, that we don't allow our teachers to go outside of the box, which definitely doesn't allow our students to go outside of the box. So how does that element fit into to this concept of human-centered learning systems? So we imagine that element of educating, liberating young people to participate fully in society as really helping young people understand their emerging self-concepts in the context of the societal systems and patterns that affect them and to which they contribute. So really trying to cultivate critical consciousness about um, this, who we are and, this is, and our multiple identities and, this, and in the, the ways in which those intersect with our societal systems so that people are developing not just the agency in the school setting, but eventually the agency in a societal setting to say, this is how I want to influence the world. And I really understand the dynamics that are affecting my ability to contribute to it. I think in, in the last element we talk about is about how learning becomes a lifelong personal practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that ties up those first three elements really nicely. Uh, that it, I, To me, that implies pretty quickly that learning doesn't stop when you leave school. Exactly. So we, we were imagining that this vision element as helping learners build the skills to engage in that lifelong and life-wide learning practice once they're done with their formal educations um, and indeed extending beyond their formal educations while that, those are happening. So really having giving them opportunities to reflect on their learning, to engage actively in their assessment, sometimes to do self-assessment and learning from adults, kind of how, you know, seeing how it's modeled. To, get, to engage in lifelong learning and, and have the skills related to that so that you really can be really intentional in pursuing that throughout your life. I think this one's one of my favorite. This is the part where when I first read the paper, I'm starring and highlighting. And um, because sometimes we talk a lot in schools about we're getting kids ready for college and career, but this goes beyond that. And it's really this idea of learning as a skill and we all have different ways of doing that. And we all have strengths and weaknesses in that. And it's an asset-based model. And so when you talk about it as a personal practice, it goes well beyond college and career. It goes well beyond just this formalized instance of learning. And I think the possibilities in that are intriguing to think about and unpacking that and allowing for differences in learning is not something our systems are set up for automatically. We have to think through that and arrange for that. Um, we talk about it sometimes in the sense of we have to build the capacity of our kids and our, ourselves, but also create the conditions for that to happen. How do you talk with someone about this who worries or is concerned about the lack of specific content or specific mention of academics or competencies um, or that kind, that kind of traditional school performance? Um, so in my view, part of that is that this is um, the human-centered learning is kind of articulating a value that we want our systems to embody and that, that that will help guide us in then determining what content and approaches we use, which would unlikely be, would likely be much of what we are currently doing, 
likely not entirely what we're doing. And, um, but it would be kind of the, the guiding kind of ethos that would help us be making those more specific choices. I also, I, I think it could be related. I love that Catherine to some of um, the community visioning that we do um, and what, do, what our communities want for our kids. In those conversations, some rich things come about and we can capture those through a portrait of a graduate or vision statements or the things that we do. And we have to incorporate that into the academic conversation. And if it comes from the community, it's a lot easier to do versus it's written by the superintendent and the school board or whatever leadership entity wrote it originally um, versus the community. So when, when you work with systems that you're hoping to move closer towards um, you know, a, a being a fully human-centered system, what are some of the, uh, the pivot points or those kind of launch points where you're able to say, um, like, this is an indicator that this district is ready to go to another step or that this district is even ready to hear the words human-centered? We, we often are, find that um, folks will self-select into exploring the future. So there's often, a, I think there's, a, do people somehow in, indicate a, a willingness to, to question how we're approaching education today or a, an interest in saying, you know, what else could it be? And, and so if, if there's that kind of mindset and openness to questioning assumptions and imagining future possibilities in a specific context, then I think that kind of um, creates an openness to exploring this particular concept among many you know, future possibilities. And I, and I think this, this paper is aspirational and our future forecasts always help us look to where we need to go in our practices. And so looking at the mindset work that we do with districts and schools and educators, um, it helps us maybe focus on that mindset growth that we do together and the questions that we can ask can come back to, okay, what does that look like for an individual student? What is, we can help that in the coaching process, um, but this really helps guide us as practitioners and coaches on maybe some things to coach for as we're looking toward the future in a, a, a guide, as you might say. So let's talk about some of those strategies to help implement this one. Uh, the first one in the paper is called uh, co-creating authentic learning for agency and, and impact. Uh, that's a, seems like a heavy lift. I think it, it is a heavy lift, but again, it's not completely unfamiliar. I mean, it, it is kind of building on existing work to foster learners agency and, and help them consider how they might contribute to their communities and otherwise impact the, the world and in their, their kind of zones of interest. So it's, it's really helping them explore their power to, um, to contribute both in learning settings and beyond, um, and then help them understanding kind of what, have some self-determination, identify what skills, what knowledge do I need in order to kind of follow the path that I see for myself in the world. Um, so, ways to kind of begin approaching that can include integrating critical inquiry into learning experiences, you know, helping people really think through um, what interests are reflected, what perspectives are reflected in, 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 um, in different contexts, 
and then helping both learners and educators build their social capital is a fact is a, an element too, just so that um, if there are interests if a person wants to pursue, there's kind of more of a network around helping them find the way to do that and, and so forth. I think this one too uh, adds the value of the idea of competencies. Um, and so in, in, as we move through this journey of personalized competency-based learning, a lot of times we start with being standards-based. It's, it's a good entry point into looking at the standards and having strong understanding. Um, but as we get to competencies that rise above standards and get to the goodness of the essence of the standards of those deep enduring understanding skills, this points to that where we allow learners to co-create with this idea of what's the long-term purpose of learning this. Before we move to one of the next strategies, one thing that popped in my head is, as you both were, were talking is my, my question, I guess, is, is this aimed, this, this design of human-centered learning systems, is this designed for older kids or is it for like a K-12 system? Because I'm, I'm trying to think of like designing like your own pathway when you're six and seven, you, you clearly need some help. I mean, you're six years old, you're gonna need some help, but how much of it is guided and how much of it is going to be independent and just what are some of the thoughts behind the, this, this K-12 vision of human-centered systems? Yeah, when we wrote the paper, we, we were definitely focused on the K through 12 system. I think there are ways that you know one could extend this perspective into post-secondary and, and other learning settings too. Um, so yes, I, it, it isn't saying that it's completely self-directed. It's saying it's a very it's a very supported kind of approach. So if you're six, yes, the, the range in which you're exploring interest is going to be probably a lot narrower than if you're um, 16. And the way in which you're supported in that is going to be very different to be age appropriate, mm -hmm. but the um, but but finding ways appropriate to the age of beginning to foster agency, beginning to help people under you know dabble in interests, explore you know even an ephemeral one, that's still building skills that they'll bring to their journey later on when they do have more independence. Thank you. Yep. That 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 helps a lot. <laughs> for our listeners, I think, who are like, I can see this working like at the, at the high school level, definitely, you can allow kids to, to have more, more choice and be a little more independent. But I know some of our elementary teachers are probably thinking, yes, but, and instead of a yes, and right there. So, uh, so thank you for explaining that a little bit. Uh, let's move to one of the other strategies uh, about uh, prioritizing relational competencies as essential skills. I kind of like this one a lot. I like them all a lot, to be upfront, but I kind of like this one a lot. So can you talk about that one a little bit? Sure. So, um, you know, this is this is central to so much of the, how we are together. If we're going to be creating um, Learning systems that are that are really prioritizing the needs and well-being of people, then we need to be really careful about how we are together and really skilled in, in being together in those communities. So this is help think, helping us think about how we can continue to foster social emotional skill development, racial literacy, and cultural navigation skills, so that we we have um, not just the intention but the real capacities in order to to be in community together across difference and to learn how to manage ourselves in different situations. Um, 
so it's, I mean, this is it's important for our learning environments. It's crucial for society as well. So setting up a, a really important set of um, relational competencies that are going to endure far beyond a learning environment. Can this also extend to beyond, uh, you know, person to person, but almost system to system within the community? I'm thinking about in Maine here, there's a, um, a growing number of positions in districts that are essentially called something uh, extended learning coordinator or community coordinator who their role is to build the build partnerships between the school and the community right to start breaking down the walls. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I wonder if it's it looks like it's very much written from kind of like the individual perspective, but I'm wondering how this in the vision and in the thought of this extends out to systemic or organizational relations. So yeah, yes. And I'm actually, what, when you were talking, Courtney, I was thinking about, I'm working with um, the YMCA of Cincinnati right now and helping their youth de development teams uh, build strategies and systems around emotion management. So how do we set up our classrooms for after school programs, summer programs, where we know because of COVID, kids are having really big emotions right now. And how do we structure that when I'm working with youth and I don't maybe have years of experience coming into this role as uh, working with youth? And how do we structure our, our, our systems and our classrooms? How do we talk about emotion with kids? And so what it's done is taken some of our knowledge work perspectives of agency and brought it in with the YMCA strategies they currently use. And we're coming together to talk about um, what are the, what's the ideal setting to be able to support big emotions and take care of our kids in a human-centered way. And I would add that I, I do think that system, that systemic perspective is essential. I think we, we only go so far with any of this if we are kind of operating within the boundaries that we've traditionally defined as being those of a school or those of education. So, so yes, um, thinking about how education is deliberately opening up its walls um, to go out into the world and to bring more into the world, to partner with other systems. And thinking again, if, if the, the needs of the children and other people in the system are primary, then how would we organize things? How would, how would we set those boundaries? How would we set up partnerships to be really intentional in meeting those needs, knowing that you know, education can't take on it at all, but education could work differently with other community-based organizations or with you know, organizations that provide food or healthcare, et cetera. I think that one really, really got to about the organizational connection strategy. Uh, we have one more strategy that I want to make sure that we talk about. Uh, it's modeling learning as a personal practice. Yeah. So again, helping helping students um, reflect on their work, plan for how they're going to improve not just their content mastery but their practices as a learner. I think is really central here. Um, having finding ways to foster more ownership of assessment among the among students is another piece of it um, and then one way of um, enacting this strategy could be to kind of create portfolios that help students kind of monitor and manage their learning practice over time so they're um, it's kind of like a meta reflection and they're doing their work but they're also reflecting on the process of doing their work so that they're becoming more intentional as learners 
I nerded out a little bit about the feedback piece that's embedded in this in this strategy. Um, and I think if we look at Hattie's work on feedback or other researchers that are out there, um, feedback best happens when it comes from the student to the educator. And if we set up systems where our learners know where they are in their learning and they know the process to get there, the feedback really is, I'm telling you where I am in my learning and how I'm gonna get there. And there might be some coaching that happens, but it's not a always from the teacher to the student. So one thing I like the most as I was reading this uh, paper, trying to get through the elements and trying to figure out what they meant, first of all. And this this has really helped me a lot, uh, just kind of put, put my thoughts in order. But right in the middle of the paper, before you get to the strategies, you, you have some questions uh, that it's that it says help make sense of this vision. So I'm actually going to ask you both a question from this as we as we kind of wrap up this discussion. Um, the by the way, the questions are great because it helps. It will help districts really organize their thoughts. Um, so I've got, I've got two questions for you. But the first one for both of you is which one of these elements speaks most to you personally, and how can you see that one working? Catherine, let's start with you. I think I feel most drawn to this, the one about schools organizing for love and belonging because it sets so much of the, the tone of how we are together in our learning environments and um, how we aim to support one another. And it has, this, for me, the promise of helping us um, do less damage to children while they're in ed educational settings and some experience today, and also um, make it safe for kids to bring their, their authentic selves to work and for adults involved in the systems to do that too. So I think I think there's a, a lot in this one that could um, point the way toward making improvements in regard to equity and you know how we're how we're collaborating together in learning spaces across our differences. It's a great question. I what came to mind for me is um, I was a high school counselor in a personalized competency-based system. And so same for me, organizing for loving love and belonging. And sometimes high school, high school counselors have two distinct roles. One is scheduling and one is emotions, whatever that means. And I think with both of those aspects, what we learned um, by transitioning to a uh, personalized competency-based system is that when anyone has an emotion, you express that emotion in the counseling office. Any tears are always sent there. And that's not how the world works sometimes. We need to support our kids. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't support them by nature of counseling, but sometimes talking about triggers and some things that are coming up, we all have those. And they are normal everyday lives. They don't just happen in the counseling office. The second aspect is we have this sense of all kids have to be somewhere in a school. And as a counselor, I have to schedule them into something in their schedule. Sometimes there is not a thing in the schedule at that time that really makes sense for that student, either that semester or that day. And what resources do we have to organize the day or the semester for a child who might be experiencing something that just doesn't exist for a container of care at that moment for that child? So thinking outside the box of how we do scheduling in schools, I think is 
will become even more important the further we go. So my last question for you both is something that uh, that I wasn't going to ask, but Abby, you kind of brought it up earlier when you talked about this being more of the long-term vision of how we want things to happen. So there are a million of these papers out there about how to re redesign schools and organizing it around whatever topics that the paper is about. What makes this paper a way that a district or a school system keep it at the forefront of their mind. So this is where we wanna be 10 years from now, but when you're three years in and you're still struggling through this, how does the vision stay alive? How is it still incorporated when we know things like leadership change? Uh, you know, the kids are different every year, 10 years from now, we're gonna have different kids in our system than we did when we started. So how does that keep at the forefront of a mind of a district that really wants to move and what can make this work? I think that gets into um, the territory of, kind of vision setting and, 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 and tending and, and change management. So details will change over time. People will change over time as you describe. But I think um, if, some, if, if some set of people are, are holding this destination, as the as the direction that a school or a district is aiming to go, um, and then thinking about in our setting, our context, what kind of structures help us remember that when we're busy? So, are there periodic strategic reviews or other mechanisms that make sense in a particular context? Or and are there ways in which, like iterative community or other stakeholder conversations, need to happen to keep bringing people into that container around the direction to say, you know, we've said we want this. Do we still want it? it, is, does, it does it look a little bit different than we thought it did three years, but we're going to tweak it? Um, you know, now that we're implementing it, what do we need to adjust and to make it a really actively held reference point amid all the, um, the the demands of the day to day? I think is one thing that can help. I was talking to uh, an assistant superintendent a few weeks ago, and they were telling me that they were revisiting their shared vision. Um, by nature of COVID, they had a robust shared vision, went through the whole community design process several years ago, COVID hit, and they're bringing it back up and saying, what is still relevant and what, what have we learned? I'm like, that's fantastic. And they're like, yeah, we used an article, you know, from KnowledgeWorks to do this. Well, it was from a piece that Catherine and team wrote um, from this paper about revisiting your shared vision by nature of COVID. And I'm like, awesome. <laughs> so it's just a real life example of how people are taking this to heart and in honoring that visions, even if they're from the community, what do we know now or what, where have we grown as a community so that we can keep them relevant? Um, so as we wrap up here, is there anything that we didn't get to that you'd like to our listeners to, to know about, or, um, if not, then, uh, Feel free to plug where you can find this. Yeah, I would I would say um, that that one piece of context that, that could be important and help them to us think about kind of how do we use this is it because this vision came out of our strategic foresight practice. It's definitely informed by a broader understanding of kind of the way in which the world is changing and how that could impact education. So, um, just it one one frame is to think about how our education systems 
are struggling to meet current needs and are going to be even more strained to meet future needs because they weren't designed for them. So how can we use this kind of thinking, if, even if we don't end up with this specific vision for an organization, but how can we use this way of thinking, this exploration, to make sure that our, our, our educational organizations are moving not just with, but ahead of the time, so they're ready for future learners. So it makes me think about, I think sometimes the, the hurdle that we face in schools is how do we articulate what we're doing? And so this paper gives us some language to be able to articulate where we're headed. Because when we talk to parents, when we talk to students, when we talk to our communities, it's hard to argue with, we wanna design around the needs of your child. We wanna design around your human and we have to break down structures to do that. That is very appealing versus we wanna change a bunch of structures to do some personalization. I think that's a great place to end it right there. Uh, thank you both very much for talking with us today. And uh, you can find this paper called Envisioning Human-Centered Learning Systems on the KnowledgeWorks website, which we will have in our show notes and in whatever social media we have. So thank you very much, both of you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It doesn't matter.